This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Military History, a channel from the New Books Network. My name is Alex Beckstrand. I am a host on the channel, and today I am delighted to be talking to Heather Venable to discuss her relatively new book, How the Few Became the Proud, Crafting the Marine Corps Mystique, 1874 to 1918. This book was released in 2019 from the Naval Institute Press. And uh, Heather is an associate professor in military and security studies in the Department of Air Power at the Air Force's Commanded Staff College. Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. And I should say before we get going with the podcast that the views expressed on this podcast are ours alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States government, the Department of Defense, the United States Air Force or the United States Marine Corps. So Heather, first, uh, I was wondering if you could just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Uh, Well, I began researching this book. I like to joke many, many decades ago. I don't want to tell anybody how many because then you would all know how old I am. But (laughs) when I was about seven years old, maybe uh, around the same age that my son is, I realized that my dad was a Marine and that um, based on everything that he said, that being a Marine was the best thing you could possibly be. And so I just became intrigued with the Marine Corps from a very young age. And then uh, initially was studying diplomatic history when I was pursuing my master's and then decided that actually military history was more interesting to me and made the leap into what I study today. Okay, and and um, prior to your work uh, with the Air Command and Staff College, um, you were at the Naval Academy and then uh, the PhD from Duke, is that correct? Yes, I taught for a year at the Naval Academy. I taught Naval History and Marine Corps History, and one of the comments that I got from one of my students who took my Marine Corps History class, uh, she was going through and also getting classes on Marine Corps history her last semester from sort of the version the naval academy's version of rotc from a marine and she said that she would get the mythology from him and the real history from me <laughs> yes uh that that is true and and it seems like things uh, haven't necessarily changed too much uh, judging by the content of your book as well um so speaking of that, I, I was wondering if you could just talk as as sort of a precursor to uh, to the chronology in your book. Um, how would you describe 
the first hundred years or so of Marine Corps existence and, and how did Marines view themselves and how did the public view the Marine Corps? Well, if we look at military history from the long view of everything that's happened um, in history, I would have to qualify to characterize the first 100 years of Marine Corps history as pretty boring. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the Corps did have a few colorful events that it uh, managed to take and run with it. But if anyone's actually read the Marine Corps' first history written by uh, Richard Collum after the Civil War, well, let me just say that instead of taking um, over-the-counter medicine for sleeping, I highly recommend his history of the Marine Corps if you want to fall asleep. <laughs> yes. <clears throat> um, at what point, um, you know, transitioning from the post-Civil War era, as you mentioned, did the Marine Corps start to put a, a larger emphasis on its image and public relations? Well, I think that I mentioned Colum. He wrote after the Civil War, and I think that he was the first, one of the the first people to want to deal with image, and he did it by writing this really boring book about history. And so for a long time, I wondered, why did he write the book that he did? And I think this helps to explain one of the huge transitions that allows the birth of the Marine Corps' image to really... Um, Bring onto stage because Colum and his friend Henry Cochran believed that the Marine Corps was unique and elite and special, or at least they told themselves that that's what they believed, but they couldn't say that in public because that wasn't proper. And so, for the 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 Corps and many Marines believed that they needed to fix the Corps' image, but there was uh, really no way to to do that in a way that we would understand without the complete transformation of ideas about marketing. And so one of the examples I'd like to use is in the 19th century, if I had some oranges to um, that I was trying to sell, I could say something like, oranges just arrived from Spain, you can buy a dozen for a dollar. The transformation that occurred in American marketing around the turn of the century or after the Civil War really taking place in the early 20th century was, I've received these oranges. These are the best, most amazing, juiciest oranges you could ever imagine. Come buy some. And so it, it had to have that sort of paradigm shift in mentality to allow the Marine Corps and other institutions and companies to begin really selling themselves in a way that is familiar to us today. Okay. And in terms of the, the mediums used for that those marketing, you're talking the, the orange uh, oranges analogy. Um, you know, what types of medium was it? Mostly newspaper, or whether were, were there other types of material that the Marine Corps would use? So, to use my analogy and actually historicize it for the Marine Corps, in the 19th century, the Marine Corps used mainly newspaper ads, and it was not alone in this. The Navy and the Army did similar things. And if you go into the newspapers, you you would flip to the the help wanted ads, and you would read the most boring ads um, from the Army and the Marine Corps that sounded virtually identical, you know, able-minded, able-bodied men wanted to serve kind of thing. And then and with this transformation in marketing, now it began to use what's called sort of diversified advertising, where the newspapers are running these articles that look like 
articles, but they're really ads and they're beginning again to make these um, claims and not always uh, able to substantiate these claims. Running these as our, um, articles, like I said, and then also you start to see the shift around um, 1907-ish where they're also using more visual images like we know today, such as the popular Marine Corps posters. Okay, and sort of you know, fast forwarding a little bit um, to the to the rise of of American Empire. Um, how, how did how did that era um, and and the rise of American Empire affect the Marine Corps' image? I know you particularly look at uh, the Spanish American War and. Uh, the capture of Guantanamo Bay, and then later fighting in the Philippines. Um, so, can you describe the the Marine Corps uh, and its and its its effect on its image uh, that the Spanish American War and the rise of the empire brought upon it? Well, speaking of images themselves, with the Marines at Guantanamo, you had Stephen Crane there, and he was watching the Marines sort of calmly call in for naval uh, naval fire, and he was contrasting it with what he considered to be sort of the animal-like babble of the Cubans at the time that were there to um, work together with the Marines. And this resulted, I mean, there are a lot of different things to go here, but I'll go back to my original point of where uh, we were going with the images and how the Marine Corps is increasingly using visual images. And so this uh, image of the, of the Marine Signaling in for naval gunfire. Many Marines are probably have seen an image very similar to this one, so it continues to be used. And I, I think that also, if we talk more towards what um, what role does Empire have on the Marine Corps, I would argue that after the Civil War, Marines realized some Marines realized they needed an image. Uh, they started refining this image, but they could only do very limited ways to engage with the public for the reasons that I was talking about the larger U.S. Um, marketing culture. And then the imperial wars that the U.S. was involved in, uh, the Marines got to do a little bit more exciting things than maybe they had um, done in many cases in the previous 100 years. And they also got to participate um, apart from the Navy in some cases but also to in ways that they could view the army. And so I think this provided, now that we're moving mm -hmm. towards the sort of elite image, it, there are others around them that are helping to um, solidify their othering to distinguish Marines from others. And I know I used okay. others like five times there. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> um, yeah, well that, that sort of segues nicely um, into another question that I had. And, you know, it's, you know, being if anybody's around Marine Corps circles, you know, understands that the Marine Corps has portrayed itself for much of its history is in sort of a uh, you know sort of this battle for survival or existence. Um, you know, many people point to this sort of between World War Two, the end of World War Two, and the start of the Korean War is one of those periods. Um, and uh, do you have similar sort of battles for survival, um, for lack of a better term, that occurred during the time frame of your book? Well, there is one that occurs after the Civil War. I, I don't know how much it was actually a threat in reality, but certainly there were talks about uh, abolishing the Marine Corps or merging it with the Army. 
And then there's another one in my book, uh, 1906 to 1909-ish, where uh, the- President Theodore Roosevelt kicks the Marines off the boat. And so that one, again, um, is another existential crisis. I don't know that it wasn't so much that the Navy was trying to eliminate the Marine Corps, but the Marine Corps viewed it that way, which mm-hmm. I also I understand why the Marine Corps viewed it that way, because what the Navy was doing was trying to remove its most traditional and distinctive role that separates it from the Army, which is serving as naval policemen. And that goes back to a long um, long history of tensions between the Navy and the Marine Corps that we can it's hard to, to point to definitively, but I would you can see it as early as the War of 1812. So it probably uh, began even earlier, where U.S. Navy, naval officers found that the presence of Marines on board ships, uh, whether they believed this or whether they justified it this way, was sort of undemocratic and un-American. And U.S. you know sailors didn't need U.S. Marines watching over them with the Royal Marines and the Royal Navy, and so. There's this long-standing back and forth between the Navy and the Marine Corps that I think really came to a head with the, the crisis um, in the early 20th century about who is more elite. And a lot of naval officers were tired of listening to Marines talk about how um, they're elite, which I, many, many listeners may be able to relate to today <laughs> as well. And so it was not so much about what should Marines do, but how to let the Navy be elite like the Marine Corps was trying to be elite as well. Okay. Okay. And you kind of mentioned uh, or touched on uh, the discussion of Marines on ships and them being kicked off in the early 20th century. Can you kind of describe that uh, discussion for us? Well, I think there are a couple different components. Um, One is that the, the, the Marine Corps was there to make sure that you know, fires on, on ships didn't get out of hand, that there weren't mutinies. Um, they also had other roles on ship as well, such as, you know, getting up in the rigging during um, a fight and, and firing from there. They also had the role of accompanying sailors in uh, short-lived landing parties. Uh, so th- those were the traditional roles of the Marine Corps. And as I argue in the book, the Marine Corps... Um, given its its concern with um, being forced out of existence, was very loath to give up any single mission. And and what role did Theodore Roosevelt play in that uh, particular debate over Marines on ships? And why ultimately did it come to the point where the Marines were in fact removed from ships? Well, because he was close to the Navy and. Excuse me for a second. Um, because he had the ear where naval officers could get to his ear, they could sort of um, finally get what they had always wanted to occur is to get the Marines off. Um, and interesting that Perry Commandant Elliott of the Marine Corps, he initially he had heard about rumors about this for a couple of years. And so he wasn't that worried about it um, until he heard talk about the Marine Corps being uh, merged with the army, and suddenly he's like, "Okay, no, maybe this is really a bad idea." However, a lot of officers, unlike Elliot, were uh, far more concerned about it and sort of took outlandish steps to try to get publicity and show how essential they were. Okay. Um, 
some of the other uh, some of the sources that you use in your book um, are these various publications um, that the Marines had from from uh, the Recruiters Bulletin, um, the Marine Corps Gazette, which came uh, later um, in in your work, um, and the, the history of the Marine Corps book. I think you discussed already. So, how how important were those various publications on helping to you know craft the Marines? A mystique per se? Well, I think that those um, started around 1913 and 1914. So technically the mystique <coughs> had really solidified in my opinion prior to that because you see a lot of the same ideas. And, and so I would say that mm-hmm. by about 1907, a lot of the, the, the wording that the Marine Corps will use for the next decade has been uh, established. But the Recruiter's Bulletin is one of my very favorite sources because when people typically talk about this period, they emphasize commandants. Um, for example, Lejeune, and I'm saying Lejeune on purpose and not Lejeune. And, uh, and what I love about the Recruiter's Bulletin is that you can see the debates between Marines, largely uh, sergeants and lieutenants and captains, and they're all debating these issues together. And so I love how all ranks, um, so many people, not just sort of the top-down history version, you can see at work in the recruiter's bulletin, and that's what makes it a special source for me. Okay. And what other, sort of segueing uh, slightly for just a moment from the the chronology, are there other particular uh, archives or sources that you use that you found uh, particularly useful? Well, um, I spent a lot of time at the National Archives downtown in Washington, D.C., and learned from there that I would never again do 19th century history because you have to read the handwriting. (laughs) So (laughs) that is very painful. And I advise all listeners who are considering writing the book to think about practical considerations like typewriting versus handwriting. But that was, that's the the place to go for the Corps' official records. Uh, And then the Marine Corps archives in Quantico, Virginia, is where they have personal papers. And so that allowed for more insights into trying to trace sort of the unknown Marines and at what what point um, they seem to be buying into this identity and to what extent. Okay. this 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 next question here probably uh, um, will uh, will trigger some some listeners who might have experience with this, but it is it is common for for Marines um, today and in modern days to correct those who mistakenly refer to them as as soldiers. Um, yet one of the themes that continues throughout the most of your book is that Marines often referred to themselves as soldiers prior to uh, World War One. So can you talk about the evolution from Marines referring to themselves as soldiers to sort of, you know, throwing off those uh, those chains of soldiering and, and adopting the term Marine? Well, that was one of the things that uh, got me toward this book in the first place, because I ri- originally was going to kind of do a bl- diplomatic history of comparing Marines and the Mexican-American War and the Veracruz incident. And so I was in the archives for the first day and I was reading these letters from these Marines and 
they sounded nothing like my dad or my husband at the time who were Marines. And I was just a little bit floored because I just thought, like, I think many people think that the Marine Corps just always been this way and had been completely consistent through its history. And that's what really kicked off this topic that resulted in this book, realizing that Marines considered themselves soldiers and weren't always um, exactly as forthright about their institution as they are today, to put it tactfully. And mm-hmm. uh, so th- then looking at the words, uh, the Marines, I think the Publicity Bureau was pretty quick to use Marine instead of soldier in much of its writing, but not entirely. And again, that goes back to about 1914 or so. However, I found that in many uh, published or writings or memoirs by individual Marines, they still continue in many cases to refer to themselves as soldiers, especially if they're writing close to World War I. Now, if they're writing memoirs decade, written decades after the fact, then they will typically write and describe themselves as Marines. So in my period where I cover in the book through 1918, I think that the official stance is to refer to themselves as Marines, but unofficially, um, I don't think that the Marine Corps successfully got that message across to all the Marines who served in World War One. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, and that is, I, I, you know, as a reader, found that uh, really intriguing re- reading the book to see, um, you know, sort of just an, another example of, of where the, you know, sort of the, the, the history that, that most Marines or even the public learns today um, was not always the case throughout, throughout Marine Corps um, longevity. And a, a quick follow-up to the soldier question. I, it's in my master's thesis, and for whatever reason, it's not in my book, I don't think, is I also tried to chart the transition from a lowercase m to an uppercase m. Uh, and you can see the Publicity Bureau huh. at this time period in World War I capitalizing Marine more often than not. However, I, I still haven't gotten to the, like, it goes it's outside my range of area to see where the Marine Corps and its uh, and individual Marines are more systematic about capitalizing Marine like they have been for, I don't know, probably the last 50 or so years. So I think sometime in the interwar period that probably coalesced more formally than it had in this period. Okay. And, and another, um, you know, part of sort of developing Marine Corps culture is the adoption of Semper Fidelis as the motto. Um, and so can you talk about that as well? Well, that occurs in the, the late 19th century. So that's one of those, those changes um, that you can see that the Corps is starting to begin to focus more on image and identity, even though it doesn't really necessarily have a consistent roadmap of how to do that. And so uh, if I had to sort of periodize Marine Corps history in, in terms of image and identity, I would have the first phase be largely after the Civil War, where Marines start actively working on um, image and identity. And then 1907 being where this this image is pretty much um, developed, and now it will just be refined. And then I would say that another thing that you see in the in the recruiter's bulletin, like we talked earlier, by about 1914, 
is that even though the Recruiting and Publicity Bureau is about recruiting and publicity, as is obvious in the title, uh, those recruiters are also working, whether it's conscious or not, to solidify the Marine Corps' um, identity. And I think that that's arguably one of the most revolutionary things that the Marine Corps does is in establishing this identity where in many ways it's a, a, a two-way um, transaction to some extent that if you will fully love the Corps and serve it faithfully, then we will make you a real man is, is sort of the transa transactional bargain, which is saying it in sort of a more practical way than the Marines themselves writing about this at the time would have said. Mm -hmm. Um, okay, so moving on to talk about the Recruiting Publicity Bureau, um, you've mentioned how you know, around this time there was this concerted marketing and public relations uh, effort that the Marine Corps was conducting, um, but could you talk about the role that specifically that the Recruiting Publicity Bureau played and, and what that organization uh, did? But like I said, the wording that they uh, use in their recruiting pamphlets really goes back to predates the Re Recruiting Publicity Bureau. Uh, and so the, they continue to pull on those threads. What I think the Recruiting Publicity did, Bureau did that was really important was uh, individual recruiters were encouraged to become besties with journalists in the area and establishing good relationships with them. And at the same time, the Recruiting Publicity Bureau would write articles and disseminate them across the United States a couple times each week and basically uh, brag about the Marine Corps and how amazing it was and came up with lots of creative ways to try to get publicity and attention. So there was pretty much uh, nothing the Marine Corps would not um, try, whether it was noble, fun, amusing, I mean, they pretty much tried all sorts of different things. So that's really, I think, at this point where they are beginning to reach American households and help the Marine Corps solve its long um, existing problem of the fact that no one really understood what a Marine was. Uh, no one really cared mm -hmm. about Marines, and now suddenly they're able to start selling the core inside American homes. Okay, and you kind of touched on there talking about some of the, um, you know, that the, there were some innovative methods used to reach uh, people in terms of publicity or in terms of recruiting. Um, what were some of the, what were some of the uh, appealing methods that were used to recruit uh, new Marines or just, you know, uh, affect the, the public image? You know, like people doing handstands on New York skyscrapers. <laughs> um, when there is a, a sighting of a shark in New Jersey, the Marines went down to save the day. Um, <laughs> later on, in a kind of an, a sadder version, that uh, Marines took um, orphans out for a great day. But I don't know that, well, I say sad because I don't know that this was ever repeated. And so it's um, mm -hmm. sort of a different, a broad spectrum of things that they tried. Okay. Yeah. Sa saving uh, the New Jersey shoreline from a, a shark is, there's new meaning <laughs> to the Marines have landed, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, well played, well played. Yes. 
<laughs> you talk about uh, landing parties uh, a few times throughout the book, and I think some listeners or uh, people who maybe aren't as familiar with Marine Corps history might be surprised to learn that the Navy also had landing parties um, during a lot of the operations that, that the Marines um, landed in, in foreign countries. Um, and so I guess I'm trying to flesh out when the Marine Corps maybe took more of the ship-to-shore distinction from the Navy. Well, the Marine Corps uh, in the post-Civil War really started emphasizing that it was the oldest service, uh, went back and increasingly stressed the first landing party, even wrote the first landing party, um, the Navy's role in that out of history around 1914-ish. Uh, and so the Navy and the Marine Corps had both been fighting forces. If you think back to, you know, the great frigate battles, uh, sailors were fighting just like Marines. And I don't think there was really a distinction between one being inherently more warrior-like than the other. But in the Spanish Civil War, this begins to change to some extent. And uh, the Marines are now manning the secondary batteries. The sailors are manning the primary batteries. and the Marine Corps really starts taking a gendered argument to say that they are better by pointing to the sailors kind of being cowards because they're protected somewhat from naval fire, while the Marines manning the secondary batter batteries like have nothing but their shirts to protect them. So mm -hmm. I think this really marks the point where um, the Marine Corps is saying we are warriors and going back to the othering that I'm talking about that occurred in Imperial Wars saying, no, Navy, you are not. You're really just here to get us to point from point A to B, the joke that is made today, you know, like the Navy is really the Marine Corps' Uber, that kind of um, line of thinking. Now, in the early 20th century, sailors and Marines continue to land in somewhat similar numbers uh, because it's just simple realities of numbers of people on ship. It makes sense. However, in Marine mythology, um, the sailors become increasingly incompetent and are buffoons and can't shoot straight and all of these other things that we continue to see in sort of inner service rivalry for the next yeah. decades. Okay. Yeah. Um, and another theme throughout your book uh, is, is the democratization of the institution. Um, so how would you define the democratic ideals that the Marines uh, purported to reflect? Oh, well, this is also a story that I really like. And in some ways, again, this goes back to the othering. One of the examples that I have in my book of this is um, during the Boxer Rebellion, there's an anecdote of some general's aide coming down from the army and saying, hey, uh, Major Waller, you want to come, you know, put your uh, your wooby, that's not the term they use then, but anyway, your wooby up with us and kind of have more comfortable circumstances and Waller's like, no, 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 I'm going to stay with my men. And so in many ways, I think that this democratic emphasis of, you know, being there, being sharing in all the pain and the nastiness is one of the uh, best traditions of the core when individuals uh, live up to it. And in some ways we see this reflected with the closer we get to World War One, the Marine Corps, more than the other services from what I found really publicizes the idea that um, it doesn't matter if you are the bank owner's son or a, I don't know, what's a really yucky job in the, around 1914. 
the cola. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You can be a Marine if you are, you know, work hard and accept these challenges. And so they really do put out a lot of publicity um, about the ability to rise through the ranks, which I think, you know, accords with sort of American um, rhetoric and, and the stories we like to tell about ourselves, about the best parts of um, what America could be. Yeah, and, and did you see the tension at all in terms of the decision making? Um, I mean, we, the Marine Corps, again, has this image of, you know, uh, Marines follow orders and, and, um, and respect authority. Um, was there a level of democratization in terms of the interaction between the officers and enlisted men as well? Well, I think that the Corps, um, because it had a stronger tradition of NCOs that set it up to be more receptive to that. I mean, in the Civil War, you actually have some ships that, if I recall correctly, NCOs are are the head Marines on those ships. And so there was perhaps more trust given. Um, However, there was some tension between the democratic rhetoric of the Publicity Bureau and some snobby Marine Corps officers who uh, did not necessarily always like the um, some enlisted Marines becoming officers. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, um, so moving on to the World War I period, um, what did the Marine Corps do in response to the U.S. declaration of war? Um, and did you see any preparations, specific preparations that they did um, prior to the war itself? Well, the Marine Corps, because, you know, it had become so invested in the idea that it was first to fight, you know, obviously had to prove itself. And so it went to all sorts of um, efforts Again, sort of following on earlier examples, held a Marine Week, for example, to try to get recruits. Um, I wasn't really able to establish definitively in my research how well some of these efforts did. In fact, I, I had it seemed that maybe the Marine Corps had struggled more than one might think based on its rhetoric to get um, some recruits. However, at a certain point, you know, it went shifted to the draft anyway. And so that was always sort of a speculative point in my mind that I wasn't able to really determine one way or another. It would be great if the Publicity Bureau had left its, you know, weekly meeting minutes for us and we could go back and, and read records like that. But we just really don't have that kind of information. So hopefully um, maybe another researcher will be able to, to figure that out and give us some more insight into how well the Marine Corps said it was able to recruit and how well it actually recruited. Okay. Now, it, it, from what I read, you, you seem to make a case, and, and please you'll correct me um, in your answer if I am reading one of your arguments uh, incorrectly, um, but it seems like you might make a case that at times, um, due to Marines needing to uphold this image of superiority and uh, may- maybe even uh, manliness um, to bring in the gender argument, um, that Marines may have 
possibly sustain greater casualties due to uh, due to this need to uphold this image. Um, am I am I reading that that correctly? Um, I think what that is more. Craig Cameron's argument that he makes about world the World War II Pacific battlefield, uh, which okay. is American Samurai, is I think one of the most fascinating books about Marine Corps history and one that everyone should read. Uh, after I read his book, I thought to myself, well, that's a very compelling argument, but it's one of those things that unless I actually did the, the primary research myself, I would never be 100% convinced. Um, mm -hmm. And I have yet, even though I've looked to see kind of World War One records that would um, give me that kind of sense. Uh, I know yeah. I challenge Peter Owen's book a little bit because I think that he's a little, I take a little bit more critical view of the Marine Corps in World War One, And one of the reasons that I do that, which was is a chapter that um, I didn't have space to include in this book, unfortunately, is that in many ways, I think that the Corps had uh, pumped itself up and embraced this image and identity so enthusiastically and sold it so hard at boot camp for World War I Marines that um, a lot of younger, new officers had not really in my opinion, been fully inculcated into the culture of the court. And I see this when I read um, memoirs and about how they view their officers. And so for many of them, okay. the long-serving Marines, they had a lot of respect for, but the younger officers, they did not feel like upheld what they expected of the core. And so in many ways, it was a letdown. Now, on the other hand, you could argue this is kind of like a trope, maybe among some that it's like, you're just going to blame your officers. Uh, but my sense is that psychologically, a lot of Marines were let down because when it came to um, combat in World War One, the rhetoric rang a little, although on the battlefields of France. Okay. Um, you talk about some interesting uses of movies in film um, in this new technology. Um, so how did the Marine Corps adopt movies and films for its purposes? Well, I think that if we go back to what I say about the Spanish-American War with Stephen Crane seeing that Marine calling in for naval gunfire, it's the idea that now that you can use visual images, and in many ways, the Marine Corps, I think, used visual imagery um, Maybe I'm biased when I say better because I do think that the Marine Corps had better marketing images based on what it wanted to achieve. However, a counter argument would be, for example, that the Navy was bigger and they were trying to get a wider variety of, they needed to cast a wider variety so they had a, a broader range of imagery. But in one of the movies, for example, it's the novel was written about uh, an army guy and then the core adapted it for its own use and turned it into one of the earliest uh, movies for itself and very much used this the democratic ideal um, the democratic rhetoric that I was talking about earlier the bank owner's son and the Kohler or whatever job you want to take mm -hmm. and use that to try to reach um, American young young men and boys to to get them to enlist 
Okay. Um, you, you've, we've talked a few times uh, about gender and maybe, you know, people listening obviously would hear um, and just knowing that the era uh, we've mentioned men and, and young men and boys, as you just mentioned, um, you know, being targeted for, for recruitment and enlistment. But your final chapter also looks at gender roles in the Marine Corps. And you, you talk about hypermasculinization um, even while during World War One, the Marine Corps opens its doors in a small way to women. So can you talk about the role that gender does play with Marines in the early 20th century? Well, this is one of what I thought was one of my most fascinating things to discover while I was revising the book was that, you know, most people look at, well, you know, the first time that the, the Marine Corps has um, female Marines, isn't this a huge achievement? And, you know, yay, yeah. it's, it's very exciting. But what's more interesting to me is how the Marine Corps, and it's hard to point to who did this or, or how it happened, because there, again, there's, it's hard with this cultural history to find the smoking guns where people, you know, wrote down, well, on this day, I decided this is how we would deal with these women that we really didn't want. Um, but in this case, <laughs> the, um, the role of clerks in society, that was increasingly a job becoming gendered as female. And so the core, of course, used this rhetoric of, well, now we have these um, women that's going to free a man to fight, and we're going to show, depict this, um, these images. But in reality, the male clerks at that time had already been declared um, unfit for an overseas service. <laughs> but of course, that part wasn't emphasized mm -hmm. and was cut, um, kept very, very quiet. So it really didn't free um, any men to fight. What it did do for a clever um, institution was to reinforce that, you know, men did manly, like very masculine things like go out to war and women did paperwork. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it was a relatively small number of women that took on these jobs, correct? Right. I think the final number was like 305 and the number of clerks it was supposed to replace was like 223. My numbers are probably a little bit off, but the idea was that you needed three women for every two male clerks. Wow. So yeah, even even sort of you know establishing these gender stereotypes, even with the numbers that could accomplish the job. Yes, <clears throat> and then uh, if you look at the very interesting ways that. Uh, female Marines wrote about their service for public consumption, uh, also worked to undercut women's contributions. Um, you point out in the conclusion, you know, as this book looks at the culture of the Marine Corps and its changes over time, that culture is, is never fixed. Um, and, and so I, I'm curious, you know, what you see uh, out of the changes that the Marine Corps went through during this time regarding its culture. Um, are, there, are there changes that, that have stood the test of time and, and those that, that have not? I think that it's hard to find a institution that has been more consistent in its culture than the Marine Corps. Uh, although maybe there's a, a better counter example out there that, that I'm not aware of. And I think that's for good and for, for bad. I think that the Marine Corps can update and sort of refresh um, its image for to fit the imagery of the time period so that it, it 
continues to look modern, but that the ideas underpinning all of it are pretty, pretty much the same. Mm -hmm. Well, Heather, we're kind of wrapping up the podcast here, but uh, as this customary here on uh, the New Books Network, I was curious if you could just let us uh, into a little sneak peek of what project or projects you might be working on right now. Well, lots of things. Um, our Department of Air Power is working on a proposal to talk about future technology and how it will affect air power and trying to take the long view of um, not getting so caught up in change that we forget about continuity and history. And then I have an ongoing manuscript. I have a thousand, a hundred thousand words that I've drafted over the last year and a half. And that deals with intersections between um, air power theory and thinking before wars, and then how that thinking changes uh, during the actual employment of air power in World War II. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, that sounds like. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> but still very fitting to uh, when when that is finally uh, published to be here on the, the New Books and Military History podcast again. I was looking um, forward to it. Yes. Um, well, Heather, this has been very delightful. Um, again, we've been speaking with Heather Venable and her book, How the Few Became the Proud, Crafting the Marine Corps Mystique, 1874 to 1918. That was released in 2019 from Naval Institute Press. Uh, Heather, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. It's my pleasure.